Okay, it's just us, right? Um, my wife just texted me that she heard that Pastor Carlos said this was a PG-13 rated sermon and that she wants to go hide now. So hopefully she turned off the computer before coming here at 11 o'clock. If you see her as she's coming in and you're walking out, just go, it's totally fine. Or go the opposite direction and go, don't go in there. Either way, it'd be awesome. We are actually going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses, uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we're in a series called I'm Giving Up. Uh, I'm Giving Up for Lent, and as opposed to talking simply about uh, something that we could give up for Lent, and, and some, a lot of us have, and that drives you into deeper prayer, and that's great. Um, we, we are a fan of that, but God really doesn't care if you give up chocolate. He probably has a problem with you if you're giving up coffee. And it's something that if it's just this short-lived 40-day thing of just giving something up without allowing something else to sub in, we may be missing the point. We are missing the point um, because God ultimately cares very little on whether or not you give up chocolate. He does care a whole lot about whether you've given yourself to him and given up completely. And so this whole series, we're talking about giving up and letting this be a Lenten season that launches us into a deeper faith and a deeper commitment to him. And that's really what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 4 and 5. And, and the crazy thing is that we, last week we talked about giving up our mouth for, for Lent. Now we're talking about I'm giving up my lust. Now lust is a, is a, is a funky thing because we, we usually just keep it into the like sexual dynamic or, or, or that category. But lust really biblically speaking is something that is surfaced talking about any type of just uh, massively aggressive desire to get something that we don't have, to, to say this, this thing over here is an ultimate need of mine and I don't have it and I'm frustrated that I don't have my ultimate need in this area met, so I'm going to go and get my need met myself. I'm going to step in and be my own functional savior. And, and the thing is, is that Paul, in this passage in chapter 4 and 5, he does not keep it in the, in the sexual dynamic alone. He actually goes, for sure, into toxic sexuality, because that's, that's a very easy way to, every human being has, can relate to that concept of feeling like this drive within us that's, that's driving us to go against the grain of what God seems to call us to. But he doesn't keep it there. He, he goes from toxic sexuality to actually materialism or, or greed. In fact, when I was uh, growing up as a kid, um, or when, I, when I was in junior high and I was starting to read my Bible um, just for myself, and I remember getting into Ephesians and just going, and I did this with every book, to be honest, but every, and as a junior higher, whenever I would see like, like the word sex or sexuality in the Bible, I was like, oh, this is an underlinable one, you know, and I, I just, it drew my attention. So much so that I missed what, what was being said just before and just after that verse, or even within that verse, basically any word in that verse other than sex. And what I found is that if you look at all the passages we're focusing on today that Paul talks about, whenever he's talking about lust, whenever he's talking about how it, it, lust is something that leads into sexual immorality or impurity, in the same sentences, sentence, usually within a word, he clumps it in with greed, or materialism, or this hunger and drive, not just for, for something physical in, in, in a sexual component, but for something physical that I could own, that I could, that I could keep for myself. And the reality that that common root of lust is the thing that causes us to have a hunger for each of these things and never finding satisfaction. Ravi Zacharias put it this way. He said, um, when I'm talking through, and I get a chance to talk to a lot of college students when I'm talking to them, I ask them, you know, the question, because they're thinking about their future, they're in relationships now. Oh, Julie's in the service. Oh, <laughs> hi, babe. <laughs> totally missed you there. Um, it, uh, where was I? <laughs> Rabbi Zacharias, thank you. 
talking to college students, and he, and he said, am I blushing? Um, he, said, uh, he said that as he's talking to college students, he asked them the question, how many, how many sexual partners or sexual experiences would make you happy? Like, what's the amount? And, and how much money would it take to be in the bank for you, for you to be happy? Like, what, what would produce the happiness there? And he said that the loneliest people he finds in this world are those who are the most indulgent. He said that meaningless, um, meaningless doesn't come from uh, the existence of pain. Or even disconnection from God doesn't come from the existence of pain. Dis- disconnection and meaningless with relationship to God comes from the presence of pleasure. And misdirected pleasure, basically misunderstood pleasure. And, and so that's when, when we're coming to this passage and we're looking at this very common route to every single person here. This is not something where you're like, man, I'm just so glad that my spouse is here because they need to hear this. Or I'm just so glad that my teenager's here because they need to hear it. No, this is an every human being reality that all of us have this common root of lust that shows up, whether it's um, in your Amazon account of what you're hoping to come and arrive on the door and just make your day with that smiley-faced box, or, or it's in pornography, or it's in, in just whatever. We have a common, the common root is this desire for something that I don't have, my ultimate need. This is my ultimate need. God is apparently not stepping to the plate and helping me out on this one, so I'm going to go seek it at whatever cost, regardless of whether or not this is something that he's called me against. Every misstep, every affair, every, every overconsumption finds its roots in this idea that I'm not complete, but I can make myself complete on my own. And that is what lust is. And so we're going to be talking about that uh, this morning and talking about three reasons from Ephesians 4 and 5. Um, basically, it's like three or four verses that we can see that, that really are honing in on this um, that Paul's talking about with why we should give up lust for Lent. The first reason is because God wants me to be fully sensual. God wants us to be fully sensual, and that's why we should give up lust for Lent. Um, we see, actually, we'll, we'll back it up a couple of verses behind 19 to 17. Paul's talking here to a group of Christians, but he's saying that, listen, in another letter, he said, it's not our place as Christians to stand in judgment for those outside the church and how they're living their life morally. Um, I mean, because we can impose a whole bunch of like moral expectations on people who don't have the Holy Spirit to guide their life. But if we are a, a part of, if we have the Holy Spirit, if, if God is in us, well, then we certainly should, should stand in judgment of our own lives and, and bring those before God. And each and every time, it's going to be something that it's not an, a gimme, like, oh yeah, this is automatic. It's scripture, so it's always going to come to us in an offensive way that makes us second-guess ourselves and then get on board with what God's doing. But listen how he positions that in verse 17. So I tell you this, And I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost, this is key, having lost all sensitivity, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. That is, however, not the way of life you learned. Paul's pointing out here um, something that Expositors talks about and and that when Expositors uh, commentary uh, hones in on the fact that this word, when he's talking about a lack of sensitivity, he's talking about the fact that that these these folks' hearts have no moral stimuli. Uh, Their their hearts are atrophied towards the, the, the guilt that would come from a believer who's actually active in that whatever sin it is that will cause you to to come back to God. But he's saying, you know, the problem is that we have a lot of believers who are acting 
almost like they don't have that stimuli within them, that moral stimuli to wake them up and say, this is wrong. And he says, that's where we need to, to come back to the Lord and, and be back on track with him. Um, the idea of, of, of what Paul is conveying and what scripture conveys as sexual sensuality and, and in, in the ideal sense basically looks at the way that the world looks at sexuality and says, listen, it's not that you're thinking too, too much about sex. It's that you're not thinking about it enough. Or it's not that you're, you're thinking too high about sex. It's that you're not thinking about it as high enough. The biblical perspective on sex is this. It is totally confined by this. Rules. There are rules all around sexuality, human sexuality. Dum, dum, dum. It's like, and it's super, super like, not any of this, but this. This is what it is. And it's so confined that it's like confined between a husband and a wife that are married. They're in the covenant of marriage, and sex doesn't happen before that. It only happens from that honeymoon night on. And so it feels super prudish and and just like, oh man, how how can you be so like short sighted? But that's what it is. But to be quite honest, that's exactly what Scripture is saying, except for that they're giving that explanation of why. Scripture says that when a couple has come to a place of saying, it is you and it's me and it's nobody else. It's you and it's me and it's nobody else for life. They come into that covenant of marriage. All of a sudden, then they have the safety and the vulnerability to open up their, their lives and their bodies to one another and, say, and to do what Scripture p- presents sexuality as for the purpose of doing. And it's not baby making. The primary purpose in scripture is not baby making for sex. That's part of it for sure. But the primary purpose is laying down one's life for the other person. That's the purpose of sexuality. It's this picture of a husband who's coming into the sexual experience not to get his needs met. His purpose to come into the sexual experience is to bring pleasure to his spouse. As soon as he signed up to be a husband and got married, from that moment on, sexually speaking, his and everything else is speaking, he is laying down his life for her to bring pleasure to her. And when the wife, and Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 7, her body, just like the man's body, they're no, no longer their, their own, they're the other person's. And so basically, the, the wife also says, okay, from this moment on, I'm coming into the sexual experience to bring you as much pleasure as possible. Now, if you've got a husband whose number one job in his marriage within the sexual experience is to bring pleasure to his wife. And the wife's number one job in marriage regarding sex is to lay down her life and bring pleasure to this guy. You have two people making an incredible step that's actually creating this amazingly pleasurable and highly sensual experience because you don't have the frustration of why are you not meeting my needs? You don't have the frustration of, of like, you're so selfish. All of a sudden, you have this amazing thing where it is actually life-giving. It's laying out Ephesians 5, where it's talking about how we need to be laying down our lives for one another. Every time a married couple is having sex, they're renewing their vows to lay down their life for each other. Now, that's rules. But truthfully, even if you're not a Christian, or even if you're a Christian and you do not affirm Scripture's perspective on sex, you have to understand that this is what we do. Everybody does this. We always naturally have rules to protect things that are beautiful and powerful. If you go to an art gallery, um, you're going to see this. You're going to see a weird dynamic. You're, you're not going to see the same thing as you, if you went to a preschool. A preschool, everything on the wall should be touched and sometimes tasted. That's preschool. You go to an art gallery and there's a dude with a gun. And the guy with the gun at the door is making sure that nobody goes up and tries to taste the art. Okay? His job is to make sure that no one's going to come up and go, Look at, look at the texture on that. Like, just look at the texture. I just want to, like, I, I know I just ate Doritos and my fingers are glowing orange, but I just want to grr, grr, because look at that. It's amazing. 
And to which someone else might say, you can't do that. Did you not see the, that incredible barrier wall that they've put for, you know, people that are a foot and a half high that they could not possibly get to the art because of it? To which I think any given person might say, well, how prudish. Like, why, why won't you let me touch the art? Well, you can't, it's art. No, I know, but I want to touch it. This isn't your gallery. So I paid $12.50 to get in here. Boom, I get to touch the art. Well, yes, you, but it, it's not yours. An artist made that. That is, that is not your property. You don't have the right to do with that whatever you want. They have rules about what you, and, and to which a, a believer can go, actually, that's kind of what Scripture says about us. We're not our own. And so we don't get to make the we don't, We're not self-making the rules for ourselves. We actually are, are abiding by the, the artist who made us. And go with, with him on that. We naturally have rules to protect things that are beautiful. If you have someone that's precious in your life, whether they're a small child, a little daughter, a little boy, whatever, you protect them. You protect them. You have rules around them. Not because you're prudish or backwards or short-sighted. It's because you're, you're protecting them. Because it's so, this, is so, this is so beautiful. We need to protect it. But also, we make rules about things that are powerful, which is why The Simpsons works. The Simpsons as a show works in part because of Homer. Homer Simpson and Bart, yeah, he's key. But Homer Simpson is so absolutely necessary. And his predisposition and how he's wired is so important that they put it into the show to let you know right at the beginning, at the, at the opening um, intro to the show, every time you get to know exactly what Homer does for a living. What does, where does Homer work? Yeah, the nuclear power plant, which is, the, that's the joke. Homer Simpson is someone who doesn't know the rules. He doesn't care about the rules. He's totally oblivious. And he works in one of the most powerful, dangerous places in town. That's the joke. And the reason that it's a joke is because everybody knows that you naturally make rules to protect things that are beautiful and powerful. We do this. And scripture does too. And that's why when, we, when, when, you, when you look at, at this, this is something that, that as Christians, we say, okay, we know that our natural drive is going to naturally drive us away from God's leading on this, but we just know that we, we can be self-aware enough that, to say that our drives are dumber than God. No matter what your drive is, no matter how strong your sex drive is, it's dumber. It's dumber than God. I can promise you that. If you're, if you're 15 years old or 55 years old and you have a, whatever drive towards materialism, to greed, to sex, your drive is dumber than God. Yeah, but my boyfriend, yeah, he's dumber than God too, okay? Realize that, that we actually, we, making rules to protect things that are beautiful or powerful is what we do. Um, when my wife and I, when we were dating, that was one thing that we wanted to, we wanted to, we wanted to get to marriage. And we, wanted, we, we actually wanted to be two ignorant virgins on our honeymoon, and it was so easy. We didn't even have to try. No, it was incredibly difficult. That was like, it was like ridiculously difficult. But it was something that we really wanted to do. And, and if you're like, well, yeah, but you're a pastor. That's like a prerequisite, right? No, <laughs> it's not. But it's actually something that people who aren't pastors have come to the same conclusion of. This is Scott Harrison. He um, is the founder of Charity Water. Before that, he was a, a club promoter in Manhattan where he had as much money, as much sex as he could possibly want. He was very incredibly important, popular. He's the guy who, who got Jay-Z places uh, in, into the clubs, and he was the promoter until he, get, he hit the, the brick wall of realizing the meaninglessness of indulging in just pleasure, that money could never make him happy, sex could never make him happy. He was longing for something that he just couldn't quite get his hands around. And all of a sudden, he surrenders his life to Jesus. 
And after that point, he starts to make it his goal to bring, just to, to be socially aware and to say there's places in this world that do not have it as good as we do and they don't have fair, safe drinking water and that's just messed up. Let's do something about it. And so he, Scott Harrison, goes into that, that type of thing and along the way, he meets the person who would ultimately be his wife. But he realized, look, I've had, I've done so, I've had such a track record with sexuality. I've already like done that. So it's not like I'm saving myself for marriage like Errol. He actually said that. Uh, he's, he, did, he, didn't, he actually didn't have that perspective. He actually had the perspective of like going, yeah, I've already done all this, but from here on, I want there to be a difference in my life. And so he's, he talked with his wife and, and, or his, his wife-to-be and, and said, listen, this is something that I really feel strongly about. And she was like, really? And he said, yeah. She said, Okay. And both of them um, continued life. He just wrote a book called Thirst, which I highly recommend, incredibly good book. But in that book, he talks about that as being part of his perspective. I hesitate to put this next picture on, but I'm going to anyway. This is Justin Bieber and his wife. Benji Satorius last night did not, honestly, did not know for a second which one was Bieber. Um, <laughs> but Justin Bieber, and, uh, you know, he had gone through the same thing. And he had done as, as much drugs and had as much sex as a person could possibly want, but also realized the meaningless and lack of fulfillment that that was bringing him. He surrendered his life to Jesus and really wanted to follow God, and he meets Haley at church, Haley Baldwin, and, um, and then they start dating. But he says, listen, and people didn't really know about it at the time until Vogue uh, came out last month. February's Vogue talks, interviews the couple, and they talk about the impact that religion and faith had, their Christianity had in their relationship. And the way that he put it is that he actually decided, they decided to be celibate until marriage. And he said because he had a legitimate problem with sex, which he described as an addiction, and wanted to feel closer to God. If you're surfing the web and you get to BuzzFeed, which is a totally Christian website, <laughs> and you go between um, finding out about um, Adele and Jennifer Lawrence's um, uh, appearance at a gay nightclub where they sang and stuff, and some other thing that's taking place in a celebrity's life, you're going to find out about this, or you're going to see this um, article, which is newsworthy. This is what it looks like to wait till, until marriage, where they interview two 23-year-olds, Ori and Eugene, and actually, in, in an incredibly fair um, article, give them a chance to say for themselves why they decided to do this. And this is what, what, um, what Ori, the, the female, said. She said, the motivation for celibacy before marriage is simple. I am a Christian, and I believe our bodies belong to God. He made us, he created us in his image, and we serve him with our bodies as well as our minds and our souls. And because of that, I don't believe I should really be using the body that God gave me to be having sex with people who I'm not married to and I'm not one flesh with. God wants us to be fully sensual. He doesn't want to downplay your sensuality. He wants to upgrade your sensuality. And, and he calls Christians, and this is, again, this is not speaking to an echo chamber. Paul is speaking into people who needed to hear this because they weren't living it. Just like 2019, just like us. This is something that we need to hear. But not only does God uh, want us to give up lust um, be, simply because, to make us fully sensual, but to also to make us fully human. If you jump down to chapter 5, verse 3, he says this. But among you, and again, look at how many times sexual immorality and greed are linked together. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. His case is not that these aren't fun. This case isn't like, no, no. He's actually making the case that this is commonplace in our culture and acceptable. All these things, including sexual immorality, which is uh, the word pornea, which is the word we get pornography from. 
Paul is saying all this stuff is super, super accessible, super, super normative, and no one's going to judge you in the world for doing this. In fact, they're going to encourage you. You're going to be a freak if you don't. And yet he says that the argument for you not doing that is because that's not the human that God has created you to be. It's improper for God's set-apart holy people. That for you, that they're actually, you, you, because you know that you're created by a creator, you actually trust him more. Again, you're coming back to the fact that your drive is dumber than God. And you're willing to be self-aware enough about that to let your life be shaped. And actually to let your life be more human. Um, lust actually is a dehumanizing agent in our life. What it ends up doing is this. Lust degrades people into products and upgrades products to be valued like people. This is where greed and sexual morality kind of fuse together. Lust degrades people into products and upgrades products to be valued like people. Um, products, whatever it is that, that you love or that you, you long for. Um, how, many has, how many of you guys have a cell phone in here? Like a thousand percent? Okay, good. Um, we love these because they are our best friend. No one is as close to us as our phone, literally. Like, no one is as close to us as our phone. We take this everywhere. Um, Your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, do not go with you as many places as this guy, okay? (laughs) Really. And the only place that I, I don't take this pretty much is the shower and that's and that or the pool and so this is something that is with us all the time and you know what's interesting is that when this came in we all of a sudden realized that we had a savior from all of the things that um felt made us feel disconnected and made us feel bored we'll never have another boring moment on planet earth because we constantly have a portal out of our boredom to that point whenever you have a family gathering count have just like set a timer for how long it takes for everyone in the room to eventually go ah Okay, because it's, it's going to be a period, of, it's, it's not long at all before all of a sudden we realize that, honestly, my, I, I want to give far more of my eye time to this. My screen is actually gives, gets more attention than my family members. Or if, if everyone's in the room, I'm, I'm going to be glued to this far more than the people, the actual like living, breathing people. And, and so basically, we, we can actually look for and long for products to take the place of people. But we do conversely. We actually cause people to go into the mode of being products. Um, the, the, one of the things that within, within even um, sexuality, human sexuality, that's super commonplace is the idea of like, look, if we're dating and we're super serious, well, it's kind of like normative and natural. Or maybe like we'll live together or whatever. It's not a big deal. To which I would say, absolutely, you're right. Because that is normative and natural. But Paul keeps on coming back to this notion. And he doesn't say, until 2018. And then all bets are off, do whatever you want to do. He's like, no, this is going to go to 2018 to 2019. And we're going to be living this out. And the crazy thing is this. It makes sense. Because when I, if I'm someone that's dating someone... And I say to this person, and I, basically I'm, I'm saying to this person, I'm, I'm not married to them, but I, I want to have sex with them. We're, having, we, we, we're in a relationship where we've had sex. I'm saying to this person then, listen, I think you're great. I'm not ready to tell you I want to give you my life. I'm not ready to, to, to tell the whole world that we are going to do life together. Maybe. I mean, you're great. You're awesome. But I'm not sure yet. But I want your body now. I want from your body what I can get from your body now because I don't want to wait for that. I'm just not ready to tell you yet with my life that we're going to be to the end. Now, no one who's having sex before marriage says that. that that's, that's an extreme, right? But that's, in effect, what we are saying in that. We're saying, I'm not will- it's not, 
I'm not willing to tell you that I want to give you my whole life before giving you my body. I want your body now. And what scripture says is that that actually causes a dehumanizing effect in our relationship. It causes the couple to be in a perpetual state of, I don't, unfortunately, oftentimes the female to be in a perpetual job interview. She doesn't know if she's going to win. He hasn't committed yet, but I mean, I'm sure it's going to happen sometime soon. If I keep on trying to impress him, maybe he'll actually want to tell me and tell the world that he's, we're going to do life together. That's why this is off. This is why when scripture comes back, it says, no, God is protecting us and he wants to provide us this amazingly powerful, beautiful thing of sexuality. And it's also something where when you look in, at the rise of all of the people who came forward and said and, and proclaimed with the Me Too movement, I, had, I was victimized by someone who crossed a line. There was someone who was in power over me that used sexuality as commerce and I had to step up to the plate and perform otherwise I wouldn't get this job or someone who crossed the line into just straight up accosting me and physical abuse. Um, and, you, and you see that surface and all of a sudden you, you see people like this. Devon, Devon Franklin, who's a Hollywood filmmaker, and he, and he was talking about, you know, what the, what the world has a problem with and, and, and the whole toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement showcases for him is that we have a problem but the problem is, it's a God problem, and it's a, pro- it's a problem with ignoring the, the like three or four verses that we see in Ephesians. If the three or four verses that we see in Ephesians were lived out, there would not have been one of those hashtag me too victims. Not one of them, not, not from that. If Ephesians, if these three verses in Ephesians were lived out, we wouldn't have what was a following um, movement, which was the hashtag church to, of anyone who had been in a sexual, had been sexually accosted in a church setting, whether it was Catholic or Protestant, or, or under some type of other kind of abuse from the church. The three verses in, in, in Ephesians, if they simply were lived out, we would actually have a more humanizing effect on one another. And, and Devon Franklin puts it this way. He says, most men are taught, whether you're in church or outside the church, hey, if you want to have sex, go do it. Now, I'm not going to judge anybody that makes that choice, but what I am going to say is that in order to have discipline in your life, it starts with curbing your appetite for sex and getting some discipline there. Any man that can get disciplined in that area can do anything. He goes on to say, if you want to be a faithful husband, I believe that a faithful husband starts in dating. It starts in curbing your appetite, curbing your desires. What he's saying is this, if you actually want to be a faithful spouse, or ladies, if you want to marry a faithful spouse, find someone who wants you but is choosing to curb his appetite. Because if he does, when you're married and other opportunities present them to him, he will already be trained in what it is to curb his sexual appetite. If he has no control with you now, what gives you any inclination he's going to have control later on? Devon Franklin's point is that, 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 that inside all of us, that we have this dog, this, this dog that's called lust. And if we let this dog lead us wherever it goes, we will see the carnage of our life. And you will either be the victim or the victimizer in that situation. God doesn't want that. He wants us to be fully human. Not only does he want us to be fully human, he wants us to be fully blessed. And Paul saves his harshest words to verse 5 where he says this, for in this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, some people disagree on whether or not he's talking again about these people who are outside the faith, who have made their life all about their desires and have let their drives drive them, 
or if he's talking to the people in the church and says, listen, you are saved, you're redeemed, but you are shortchanging and cheating yourself out of rewards, not only in the life to come, but in this life now because you are living with something that is not God at the center of your life, your desires. And, and, and the crazy thing is this, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, I, look, I've been writing my own rules on this, but they make sense for me. I just got to tell you that if you want God, if you believe in God and you, want, you believe in Jesus and you want him to bless your relationship and you're, you're actively doing something that you know he's not cool with, how is he going to bless that? If you're someone who, who's like all about products and, and how much cash you're bringing in and you're, you're using your money and you're idolizing your money in a way that's not honoring to God, how do you think God's, do you, and you want God to bless your finances? How do you, why would God bless you in that area? Why would God bless you relationally or, 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 or materially if you're basically taking these two very things and shoving it in his face and saying, I don't care, I want to do what I want to do? See, but you have to know, this is something that, I, that just an evaluation, I see that this is my struggle too. I wrote this up just kind of like, kind of having a self-vent sessions, just reading through Ephesians 4 and 5. When I let the brilliant self-assessment of my needs trump God's prescription for my path, Basically, whenever God's path conflicts with my needs, my needs win. Therefore, I condition the notion that God is only good when he agrees with my impulses, goes along with my decisions, and supports my understanding of my body. Eventually, I realize that it's far too bothersome to keep including God in my decisions, especially when I'm just as capable to decide what's right for me. I am the, if I am the final judge of personal truth, and the ultimate master over my life decisions, I not only don't need God, I am God. I am God. I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I am, let's be honest, I'm God. That's what my life says. I love how Devon Franklin again says, no, God's called us to love and he says this, so for me, as a man of God, to be successful, I have to let that love lead me. I have to say, okay, God, I love you so much that I don't want to do this. But not only do I not want to do this, but I'm also actually going to get help for this. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to not suppress my feelings. I'm not going to be in denial. I'm going to accept. I'm going to discipline. I'm going to work on mastery. It's a lifelong process, but it's a beautiful process because it produces what? Peace. And too many of us have allowed lust to be the dog that's leading us in our decisions, saying, yeah, I know God, I know God, I know God, but, and we haven't been experiencing that brand of peace. Church, the whole point of this whole series is stepping into a life that challenges our current decisions. Last week with our mouth, this week with our lust. We have work to do. Because it's far too easy to say this is normative and natural. And we're right if we're looking at everyone else but Jesus. The amazing thing, though, about, about Christ is this. That right when we feel guilty, and we feel like garbage because we're presented with the reality of our distance between our decisions and God's, the gospel steps in. The gospel is something where God reminds us he doesn't want to keep us guilty so we get paralyzed by shame. But instead, we experience guilt to catapult us into life. And the guilt, by his sacrifice, causes, the guilt disappears. The shame is gone. He gives us new life. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. 
I'm going to have uh, the folks in the back come forward.